Welcome to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about politics, the media, and the politics of the media. My name is Dan Hind, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Tom Mills. Hello, everyone. Today, we are delighted to introduce Alex Nunns, who's going to be talking with us today about his book, The Candidate, a new edition of which has been published in the last few days. I think it's out this month. Alex is an award-winning author. The Candidate won the Bread and Roses Prize, I think, last year. And his journalism has appeared in Red Pepper, Open Democracy, Navarra, and many places besides. As I say, today we're going to concentrate on Alex's book, The Candidate. And Tom, I'm going to throw it over to you to start the ball rolling. Okay, yeah. Um, well, welcome, Alex. He is actually yeah, he's very quiet at the moment. Alex, sorry, I, should, I was waiting for the right moment to say hello, but it just never seemed to come. I prefer, well, I'm very professional that way, Alex. I, I, I made sure that you had no space to say hello. <laughs> yeah, anyway, <laughs> hello. Um, yeah, yeah, well, well, welcome, Alex. Thanks for joining us. This, this is a great book. Uh, this is the second um, edition. I really do recommend that all listeners go and get themselves a copy. It's published by All Books. And uh, when was the second edition out, Alex? Uh, just recently, it um, it's kind of it's come out in the start of February, I think. Yeah, so it's in uh, shops. You can buy it in Waterstones, and you you know you don't have to go to Amazon, but you also can go to allbooks.com and get it from the publisher. Okay, great. And this is an up, this is an updated edition. So the the first the first edition came out before the general election, didn't it? And then this has a lot of the material from the first edition, but it's also as I understand it, cut down and then includes, and then it's got a section on um, the general election as well. Yeah, that's right. The first edition I wrote after Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party and I finished it. I was kind of two thirds, three quarters of the way through the manuscript when the coup happened against Jeremy Corbyn, which is obviously a little bit stressful if you've written three quarters of a book and uh, 172 Labour MPs are trying to make it irrelevant. Um, and then it, they, they failed, which was uh, convenient for me. And the first edition of the book came out at kind of around the time of the Labour Party conference in 2016. And then the general election happened and my publisher said, um, you need to update the book and write, you know, 30,000 words or 35,000 words about the general election, which I duly did. And then I, the worst part was to make space for that new section about the election. I had to cut the original text by about 30%, which was a total nightmare. Um, but anyway, I've done it. I, I think I managed to do it without losing anything too important. Yeah, so you've uh, you've you've trimmed it down and expanded it. It's a great book. Um, as I said, everyone should read it. It, it reads incredibly fluently. It, it's very insightful and descriptive. And yeah, so um, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, there's a whole. I mean, there's there's so much we could cover in this book in terms of understanding um, the. The Corbyn movement um, and all the different institutions that have been involved, but obviously our thing here is politics and the politics of the media. So I guess you know the core of the discussion is going to be around the politics of the media, which which does actually feature a lot in the book. I mean, you have a whole chapter on the um, on the media response to Corbyn in uh, the newspapers and television. So 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 maybe we should start there with. Um, with with panic in the media, the 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 hostility and the kind of indifference in some circles that the Corbyn initially faced and the response to that. I mean, this whole chapter is um, filled with uh, amusing quotes from some of our favourite um, commentators. Uh, just uh, yeah, maybe you could start by you started with a quote from um, Dan Hodges, I think it was, um, who Alex did a. Um, a series of tweets, a thread on Twitter about Dan's various um, predictions. He's a uh, sort of a he, he, he's a he comes across as a bit of a silly character after reading this chapter. But actually, so do a lot of the media. Um, so uh, there's a there's a long section. I mean, I sort of I don't want to sort of start by attacking the liberal left as it's <laughs> the um, you know in fashion. But I'm going to anyway. A lot a lot of the um, 
a lot of this chapter is focusing on the politics of the Guardian. So l let's start there. Um, what was the situation with the Guardian um, whilst Jeremy Corbyn's uh, right with Jeremy Corbyn's rise to power um, with the initial camp leadership campaign? Um, well, it, it was quite interesting the phases they went through at the Guardian. Um, so when Jeremy Corbyn was about to stand um, for leader, when when the nominations process was going on, and it wasn't clear if Jeremy Corbyn was going to get the thirty five nominations from MPs that he needed to stand. Um, the Guardian was actually quite positive. Uh, Seamus, Seamus Milne was still there at the time. Right. And, um, and they wrote, they actually even did an editorial, a Guardian editorial, saying that Jeremy Corbyn should be included in the leadership race to widen the debate and to bring um, some kind of uh, contest on issues such as Trident. Um, and so, and there was a, a fairly positive kind of profile interview of Jeremy Corbyn. And then he got into the race. And then they ignored him for a month. And, I mean, literally, like, you can search through the, the website and there's barely a mention. I think there's, like, two or three mentions for a month. And during that time, um, Corbyn was gathering steam in, in the leadership race. In fact, um, I mean, this is actually quite an important part of the chronology. He was already in the lead um, within a month of standing. And when the, when the um, phone canvases for the Corbyn campaign started to ring... Labour Party members two weeks into the campaign, they thought they were freakishly just phoning up every single Labour Party member who supported Jeremy Corbyn because <laughs> they, they got such an overwhelmingly positive response. They thought it was a mistake. It couldn't possibly be true. But in actual fact, what was happening is that there had been a, a profound turn against Blairism and against New Labour within the Labour Party itself. The reason why, that's in, why I say that's important is because there's this kind of pan-media myth that the Labour Party was done over by outsiders, that right. new people flowed in and took over the Labour Party. In fact, it happened first of all within the within the existing membership, the people who have been in the Labour Party, even you know when Gordon Brown and Tony Blair were leader, were leading it. That's fascinating. Um, Can I just quickly sure. just sort of ask, like, did did do you have any sense that before Corbyn that they were that the leadership were aware, like, were Miliband's people aware that the Labour Party was shifting to the left in this way? They don't appear to have been. I mean, the thing is. Ed Miliband was surrounded by advisors who you now see a lot of on the media, like um, Sonia Soda and, and people like Tom Baldwin, people like that. Yeah. And given their, their performance in the media, it's, it's remarkable that Ed Miliband did as well as he did. Right. Um, to me. <laughs> so I don't think, uh, I don't, I don't think that, that the leadership necessarily had an appreciation of, of the fact that they were actually in a reasonably strong position. There was this kind of um, perception that the Blairites were still powerful in the Miliband period, 2010 to 15, and Miliband was making concessions to them quite regularly, um, and to the rest, the other parts of the of the right of the yeah, party. Yeah, yeah. In actual fact, the membership had already moved left. You know, you can see through the NEC elections that happened in the Miliband period, the membership was moving to the left, and then the the election defeat, rather than making people think that they got it wrong, it made Labour members think, well, you know, let's 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 do it properly. Let's do it properly, um, exactly. <laughs> Um, uh, that's so, fascinating. So, yeah. yeah. But so, they, um, I mean, this this touches on, I suppose, it's, it's something you raised um, in, in that chapter where you, you you open with this discussion on Newsnight, which is a kind of alarmed response to uh, Jeremy Jeremy Corbyn's lead. And there's a sort of slip up that you refer to where they say that this is a disaster for the Labour Party. Um, but and it and it was sort of, you know you point out this was a bit of a strange thing to say because actually it was the decision, you know, it's the overwhelming opinion of the Labour Party. But then the Labour Party has these different parts, doesn't it? And I suppose it is part of it that, that you know, that this this commentary kind of um, group of people just aren't that aware or interested in, in the membership. That, that there, are, there are different parts of the Labour Party, aren't they? And actually, Jeremy Corbyn may have had support amongst the membership, but presumably amongst the sorts of people you talk to if you're at The Guardian, that's just not going to register, right? Or the BBC. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, throughout the 2015 leadership contest, if you read the media coverage, the Labour Party is taken to be synonymous with the Parliamentary Labour Party. Right. Mm. And you don't really get that. So that's kind of faded away now because it's impossible not to recognise that there is a membership out there that's half a million strong and, that you know, has an influence on politics because it's happened twice. You know, they elected Corbyn and then they re-elected Corbyn when he was challenged. But back in 2015, when you read the stuff from the leadership campaign, that's really not, not present at all. Basically, they talk. They might talk about the trade unions or the trade union leaders, um, but essentially they, they talk, when they say the Labour Party, they mean the MPs. And so, yeah, I think it's Allegra Stratton, who was political editor of Newsnight at the time, she says... 
um, this is worrying for the you know this this opinion poll which had come out showing Jeremy Corbyn was in the lead. Uh, this is worrying for the Labour Party, even though that is actually the people who are polled are the Labour Party. <laughs> um, and then later on, uh, Kirsty Walk says uh, John McTernan is their guest. Obviously, they have to have John McTernan on, and he said he's a kind of former Blair advisor, um, and he says um, this is disastrous for the Labour. And Kirsty Walk kind of says, well, what, what if nothing changes their views? This would be disastrous. And, and these, those, because this opinion poll, they were, they were commenting on, an, on a YouGov opinion poll, which was the first one which had come out in the contest. And so it's the first time that they had any idea that, that this was happening, yeah. that Corbyn was happening. And it had only just come out. It was Newsnight. It was for the next day's newspaper. So it, just, it was breaking news. And what I, what I say in the book and what I think has actually happened is that in those kind of moments when there's a, a new development which can't be made to fit into the existing patterns of reporting, it doesn't make sense to the kind of, you know, the centre-ground kind of zealotry that you usually get from that part of the media, um, then the, the, the underlying biases are revealed just in these kind of incidental comments. It's not that they're, it's not that they're launching an attack on Jeremy Corbyn necessarily in a, in a kind of, you know, the sun start away because this is the BBC, but just their incidental comments on the way reveal their underlying presuppositions and their, and their underlying biases, and and that comes out in a situation of flux where there's this new news which they can't understand. We, we're gonna, yeah. but we, don't worry, we're gonna talk much more about the BBC, I think, and its handling of the Corbyn phenomenon. Um, Tom, can we, can we, should we go back to the Guardian because we were initially about the yeah. the sort of the, the stages of. Um, the stages of grief that the guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that was an important moment because that that was a month into the race. This opinion poll that, that Kirsty Walk and Allegra Stratton are commenting on on Newsnight, and that's when the Guardian's coverage changed. Um, in fact, there were there were kind of three events that happened. There was there was the opinion poll that Tony Blair made his first intervention into the contest when he said that um, if you're going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, you should have a, a heart a heart transplant. Um, and there was the welfare bill. Um, the Tories were bringing in a draconian piece of legislation about welfare in Parliament, which Labour decided to abstain on. And these three things happened in a kind of three or four day period. Mm. And The Guardian at this point just went into complete panic and meltdown. And from completely ignoring Corbyn, suddenly just about, you know, every all of the big name columnists, um, you know, except for Owen Jones, um, and probably, I don't think Zoe Williams wrote anything either. But all of the, the you know, John Harris, Anne Perkins, um, uh, Polly Toynbee, all of the, uh, Michael White, just completely, all of them coming out with this barrage of comment pieces um, that appeared um, at the same time. And I think Anne Perkins wrote, managed to write three comment pieces in two days. <laughs> um, so basically all saying, don't vote for Corbyn, this is going to be a disaster. Um and the panic is palpable when you read those pieces. I mean, Anne Perkins actually just says, please, she pleads. She says, please, new associate members, which is actually not the right term. So a little bit of detail was uh, right. missing there. Well, she's, writing, she's writing an awful lot of pieces, so she can't be expected to check her facts. Yeah, fair enough, of course, yeah. <laughs> but she says, um, think about the future. Think about what's right for your children. Is Jeremy Corbyn in that picture? I don't think so. <laughs> but, of course, the problem for The Guardian was that its readers did did actually think so, and they had evidence of that because they'd done a kind of um, they did a an exercise where they asked people to comment on their views on Labour leadership, and overwhelmingly the responses were pro Corbyn. But that was kind of self selecting. But also they had a behind the scenes their consumer insight team was uh, canvassing Guardian subscribers, Guardian readers. They had right. a kind of core readership that they can go to and consult, and uh, I think. No other candidate other than Corbyn had more than single-digit support, and Corbyn was like way out in the lead as Guardian Guardian readers as Guardian readers' preference. So, so this was the problem for the Guardian, which they then wrestled with for the remainder of the following two months or however long it was in the contest, was that basically they were they were chastising their own readership for their kind of um, insolence and irresponsibility, and that was basically the tone of you know most of the, the polytoyme pieces and most of the the kind of coverage that followed. I mean that's fascinating. Yeah, did, did you have a sense of? Sorry, Dan. I, we both just jumped in there. Um, do you have? Did you have a sense um, from from researching this of the internal politics of the Guardian and, and what was going on there? Because uh, so Kath Viner took over around this time, didn't she? And she was seen as a, a as a sort of left candidate for the role. And then at the same time, as I understand it, you know, you have Jonathan Friedland, uh, friend of the show, 
um, also a influential <laughs> figure in, in, in The Guardian. Do, do, do you have a sense of what the politics was in the newsroom, or is that all still sort of opaque? Yeah, well, Friedland um, was still the comment editor at the time. He's since left that role. And um, Patrick Winter was the political editor, and he's, uh, he's seen by the Labour left as... He was seen by the Labour left as a kind of cipher for, for Peter Mandelson. He's, you know, he was always um, seen as a new Labour kind of guy. Um, and... Yeah, Kath Viner became got um, elected. Well, she was elected by her colleagues, and then she was appointed editor of the Guardian just at the very start of this whole process. It's, um, similar mandate to Jeremy Corbyn, in fact, in terms of the internal election. I think she won kind of over fifty percent, um, and she was seen as somebody who was going to be more left, and somebody who was uh, kind of. I think Seamus Milne was one of her supporters, and the left wing journalist at the Guardian kind of. Um, had backed her for editor over uh, Russ Bridges' choice. And um, so that there was hope that, you know, the, the politics of the Guardian was changing and it was going to move left. But it seems that at this point, when Jeremy Corbyn was re- revealed to be in the lead, all of that fell away. I'm not sure, I don't know what her personal take on it is and whether she's got any opinions on it, but um, certainly the, the kind of old-style, uh, this is as far left as you can go and no, not an inch further, politics of the Guardian kicked in at that point um, and Jonathan Friedland said I mean Friedland only wrote one piece under his own name but I'm sure he was the one who was calling up all these um, these famous kind of comment writers saying you have to contribute uh, a piece an anti-Corbyn piece and um, the editorials were doing the same kind of thing and I think Owen Jones was one of the few journalists who were who was writing pro-Corbyn pieces at the time and I think he came under pressure from from his colleagues you know why you Working the Labour Party, so um, so I think it's quite interesting in the sense that probably Kath Viner, um I imagine just from I, I don't know her, but I imagine from what people tell me about her that she is more open-minded and more left. But the institutional um, gravity, if you like, of the Guardian mm. kind of pushed it back to its traditional uh, ground, mm. Mm. even against the pressure from its own readers, which is kind of a it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because it shows you about how the, the politics of these kinds of institutions. I mean, we have in the case of the Guardian, you've got a different kind of um, ownership structure than you know you get in the more partisan right-wing press. Um, although, and you have this kind of editorial culture, and then you know there, there were there were people at the Guardian, weren't they, writing supporting um, supportive articles for for Corbyn? So Seamus Milne's there at one stage, and then we have. Um, Zoe Williams, George Monbiun, uh, I suppose Larry Elliott to some extent. Um, mm. Gary Young was he was he supportive of Corbyn at that stage? Or? I don't think he wrote anything. And also, I mean, Dawn Foster was supportive. She wrote something about housing, but she wasn't as kind of prolific as she maybe is now. Um, so it it was really. I mean, I read read it all. You know, I went through, for the book. I went went through the Guardian website and read every piece that mentioned Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. And although when you catalogue, when you put them all together, you know, it sounds you know, Owen Jones wrote five articles. Zoe Williams wrote two, although one of them wasn't really pro Corbyn, but it wasn't hostile. George Monbiot wrote one, I think, and Zoe Williams wrote one, and there might have been someone else. And there were there were occasional pieces from, for example, Frankie Boyle, you know, comedian pieces. And it was interesting what you mentioned, Larry Elliott, the economics. Um, pages were far more pro-Corbyn because they think that they had a kind of view that austerity was right. um, counterproductive and all the other candidates in the Labour leadership election were pro-austerity and Jeremy Corbyn was anti. So they, they were much better on the economics pages. But in terms of the politics pages and the comment pages, it really was overwhelmingly negative. Um, and there's no, you know, just saying, well, they also had Owen Jones and Zoe Williams wrote a couple of pieces doesn't kind of make up for the, just the overwhelming onslaught. And obviously, I think it did lead to changes in The Guardian. I mean, straight after Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader, Patrick Winter, the political editor, was moved to um, diplomatic editor. And I don't know, it's just speculation, but I assume that's because he wouldn't have had many, much in with the new Labour leadership and the new regime. Um, so, so it seems to... And eventually, Jonathan Friedland stopped being the comment editor so it seems that there was kind of some recognition within there within the guardian that they um that things had changed they, yeah yeah so in a sense they were they were they were fighting for their own relevance um in, in yeah. this uh, it's amazing to think of and so it's hard to imagine another newspaper 
berating its own readers in quite the same way, right? I mean, the whole like the whole kind of technology of of right wing populism is to is to understand your readership intimately and not to remonstrate with them, but to try and work with what they've got in order to secure certain kinds of political compliance. So for the, for the Guardian to look at its readers and go, oh, look, they're overwhelmingly pro-Corbyn. We've obviously got to sort of stamp, on, stamp this out. It's like, it, partly it just seems to misunderstand media power, right? You don't, you don't get your way through just telling people they're wrong, you know. Um, so that's fascinating. And the other thing that's striking listening to you is, is how, how completely secure in their judgment these people were that it would be a disaster for Labour. Um, and this is presumably on the basis of zero knowledge of, what, of A, what the Labour Party was like at this point, and B, what the, what the country as, the whole, as a whole felt. Like, there does seem to be an almost sort of pre-revolutionary France level of disconnect between these institutions and the, you know, the, the modern-day equivalent of the sans-culottes or the peasants. It's like, they don't seem to know what we think. They don't seem to know that there isn't cake in the shops for everyone. Um, I think the other thing is that they... The, 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 the presumption of um, a greater understanding of politics and political strategy is one of the things that really comes across from from the book is so I mean there's a quote from Polly Toynbee that you use where I mean she writes Corbyn is rushing to embrace Labour's annihilation was there ever a more crassly inept politician than Jeremy Corbyn whose every impulse is to make the wrong call on everything and (laughs) it's just kind of extraordinary really that um you know that what you have here is a large group of, of people whose you know job it is to understand political dynamics and I think you can see this. I mean, people should watch it. So, uh, there's a good, a good clip, a promotional clip that I think uh, um, you, you probably still have to see your pin tweet, don't you, Alex? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Of, you, know, you know, describing the book as uh, as um, sort of a response to that kind of puzzle that these people didn't understand what was going on with Corbynism, and so in a, to an extent, as you say, Dan, like there's a there's a kind of lack of understanding as to what's going on in society and amongst their readers, but there's also this sort of just inability to even understand anything, which is just extraordinary, really. Yeah, there, I mean, there was a, first of all, just on that polytonic quote that you just said, that Jeremy Corbyn's um, wrong, wrong, and wrong again, that was actually, I mean, we're jumping forward there, because that, that, that was from the general election on the mm. day after, or the day that Theresa May called the election. And if you read that article, it's really funny, because I wanted to say in the book that every sentence was wrong, but I could actually, there were actually, I think, two or three sentences that weren't wrong, but apart from that, <laughs> apart from that, basically every sentence in her piece, after declaring that Jeremy Corbyn's wrong about everything, is wrong. She says there's going to be a Lib Dem revival, she says the election's going to be about Brexit, it's not going to be about policy, it's going to be about patriotism, um, just everything in it's wrong. It's absolutely remarkable. Um, and then going back to the, the 2015 leadership contest, and, and this this idea about um, the Guardian lecturing its readers. Jonathan Friedland, when he wrote his single art, his single comment piece of the um, campaign, kind of encapsulated this. I mean, it was, it's absolutely brilliant, complete lack of self-awareness. He, yeah, I've got the quote here. He actually said, this is a quote. Um, so this, you think this is good? He says, sounding like the grown-ups lecturing the kids won't do it, as in won't stop Corbyn. Um, hurling insults won't help either, nor will talk of electability. And then in the same piece... In the actual same piece, he says that Tony Blair had tried to sit down the kids and say, look, you've had your fun. <laughs> he, he, he insulted Corbyn by, um, he inco- insulted Corbyn's supporters as exhibiting, quote, a form of narcissism. And then he talked about electability by saying that what was at stake was, quote, the chance to oust the Tories before today's 20-year-olds <laughs> turn 40. So he outlined the three things you shouldn't do and then did them. It's just <laughs> uh, completely astonishing. Um, that is an aside. Remarkable character. We, we're, we're trying to do a show on maybe just Jonathan Friedland or possibly The Guardian if you want to be a bit more broad. <laughs> I'm sure we could do an hour on uh, Jonathan Friedland. I think, it, I think keeping it to an hour would be the challenge. Um, as, a, as a quick aside, that um, Polly Tommy's mention of, of patriotism speaks to a much, uh, I think, a much more widespread pathology on, on the centre left. Where in America too, where they, they instead of talking about like material issues, 
um, in the United States, for example, single payer health, they'll just start going on about how the Democrats need to forge a new nationalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it's and it's and you see this obviously with blue labor here and it's 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 again it's this real kind of versailles politics where they just sort of think that their job is to go out and and tell like the idiots in their in the fields that you know the emperor loves them or something it's mm. it's very peculiar um now we've spoken a bit about um the the kind of center left media background can we move now to talk a bit about uh, the leadership group, the, lead, the team around Corbyn, how they developed um, a media response, and and how they, as it were, worked with the with the conditions in which they found them, which were obviously overwhelmingly hostile. So, obviously, the, Seamus Mill joins um, the Corbyn campaign during that that 2015 period, doesn't he? Um, can you talk a bit about how their their kind of their media operation develops over the the sort of the months and years going into the second campaign and then into the election. So um, let's start with with like the the, the first leadership campaign. It, 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 as a as a sort of interested outsider, it seemed strikingly um, dynamic in terms of its use of, te- of new technology. Who who would who do you think were the people driving that process? In, in in Corbyn's immediate sort of circle, well, the, the social media wing of the 2015 campaign was kind of at arm's length from the campaign itself. It was run by Ben Sellers um, and Marsha Jane, Jane Thompson. Ben Sellers is a he's from Durham. Um, he's a kind of social media. He's got loads loads of really great insights into how, how to unlock social media and make it into a democratic platform rather than just a broadcast medium. And it's something you see now. You see even with the you know the Tories. They, they seem to believe that how you do social media is you just go on there and you kind of broadcast your news and you tell people stuff. Whereas what is so exciting about the way the Corbyn movement um, used social media in, in the leadership elections and almost independently and spontaneously in the general election is that it was much more collaborative and much more kind of DIY and um, about people... Um, expressing themselves and, and cohering into a movement through through that process, which is something that didn't happen on the other side. And that's why Labour dominated the 2015 general election on social media. We can come back to talk about that if you want. But So that's the social media side. So that was slightly separate. Um, and then the Corbyn campaign had fairly traditional press operation in, in 2015. They suddenly found after he was in the lead that they were you know, massively in demand. They tried to use broadcasters because... Um, if Jeremy Corbyn's on broadcast, then he comes, you know, at the time people didn't know much about Jeremy Corbyn. Suddenly he, they read in the newspapers that he's this evil villain who's going to destroy their lives. And then they see him on telly and he's just Jeremy Corbyn. He's a nice guy. So um, they played that. And they also they got, you know, the broadcast coverage from rallies was looked great because you had loads of young people, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, they did get some attacks. You know, the BBC did that a panorama program, which was basically... Uh, a compilation of Daily Mail smears in televisual form on while voting was still underway, which is quite disgraceful because they, you know they didn't do anything similar for the other candidates. Um, but yeah, that, so that was the, the the leadership campaign, and they went into being leader of the the, the leaders of the Labour Party, um, and then there was kind of bureaucratic. Well, there's, there's always been a conflict in that period between the leader's office, which are trying to do a, a kind of Corbyn media strategy. And Labour HQ um, in you know down the road, who are still trying to do a traditional Labour Party stra- media strategy. And actually, there were two because of the bizarre structure of the Labour Party. There are two kind of press operations. So the Labour Party has its own press team, and the leader has his own press team. Um, and that really persisted right up to the general election and into the general election, where you had uh, Corbyn's team kind of trying to put their message out, and you had the Labour Party putting out a different message. Um, so, so we can talk about that if you want. We can talk about how that manifested itself in the general election, how that conflict happened. Um, the because of the perpetual assault that Corbyn has been under since he became leader of the Labour Party, he um, they gradually kind of um, developed through trial and error methods to circumvent the media. And one of the things I like best, one of the things I quote in the book, is one of Corbyn's media people saying that they used a strategy they called the Copoeira strategy, named after a Brazilian martial art, where you use the, the weight of the opponent's strength 
to floor them. Um, and they noticed this in, I think, the start of 2017, right. when um, Corbyn made a comment kind of off the cuff on the radio where he talked about a maximum wage cap or some kind of way of controlling high pay. Yeah. It wasn't very specific. And the whole of the media lost their minds. You know, right. They were like, this is Stalinism, this is communism, you're going to limit people's earning ability, tax aspiration, blah, blah, blah. You know, all of the stuff, it was, you know, right. full frontal assault. And then an opinion poll came out which found that the um, majority of the public agreed with Corbyn. The <laughs> executive pay was too high and the government should do something to control it. Um, so if and, you say what you actually think, um, yeah. people, people can sometimes respond to it really positively. Yeah, um, and, and the thing that they noticed, the thing that Corbyn's, this is you know, quite, quite late on, but the thing that Corbyn's media team noticed was that by attacking something which they consider beyond the pale, they actually publicise it, yeah. and far more people in the public get to know about it. And so they realised that they could play this kind of controversy, and that became their main strategy in the general election. So they didn't mind if if they announce that they're going to nationalise water, yeah. and, and then they get um, you know phone-ins on LBC and discussions on the telly with people saying, well, you can't nationalise water because you know it's, it's an affront to property rights and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then people are sitting at home thinking, well, my water bill has gone up and, and they don't fix the leaks. So, yeah, let's nationalise them. That was fine by, by the Labour leadership, you know, even if they're getting just continual assault. As long as they're doing it on grounds, on, on territory where they think they're in tune with the public, that's fine. So, also, I mean, the most, the most um, uh, important or the most pivotal one, the most dramatic one, yeah. was after the Manchester terror attack when... Um, there was, you know, the Tories wanted to suspend campaigning for up to a week. Mm-hmm. Labour wanted to get back to campaigning. And they decided that after four days, rather than be on the back foot and be accused of being terrorist sympathisers and all the stuff which was inevitably going to happen, yeah. that Corbyn would get, go out and do a speech about terror and security. And um, it was a dramatic moment. You know, they, they, they did this, they had this speech ready. Um, they briefed it on the day before the Headlines were predictable, you know, the Telegraph saying Jeremy Corbyn says UK is to blame for terror attacks and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, within the Labour Party, they couldn't find anybody who would, they couldn't find an MP who would introduce Corbyn for the speech. Corbyn's chief of staff, Carrie Murphy, was getting phone calls saying, if he says this stuff, we're fucked um, from Labour MPs. So it was a big, you know, contentious moment. Corbyn made the speech. Um, it was kind of more reasonable than people expected. It was basically saying, um, jihadis are responsible for their own actions and there's no excuse for them. But if you go and destabilise a whole region of the world and create conditions in which jihadism can grow, then you're not doing yourself any favours. And the press attacked it, the Tories attacked it. Boris Johnson said it's despicable. Theresa May said he's making excuses for terrorists. And then an an instant YouGov opinion poll came out showing that an absolute majority of the public, including a majority of Tory voters, um, agreed with Jeremy Corbyn's position. And this is a, that was a position that had basically been presented as completely beyond the pale, unacceptable, um, you know, outrageous, and the majority of the people would agree with it. So, and, and I think that kind of was crucial, at a crucial point in the election, it changed the dynamic. I think you're really interesting, isn't it? I mean, we've seen that a number of times, but I suppose, in a way, that was sort of pre-shadowed by the controversy around the leaked manifesto as well, because... At that stage, you know, I remember there was all this sort of huffing and puffing on the Today programme about these sort of policies. Because it was leaked, it was news for a day. And then the discussion had the, the sort of news agenda shifted to discussion of the manifesto, with uh, the assumption being that all these policies were unpopular, which, mm. uh, yeah, I guess was a massive um, was a massive turning point. I mean, it, what I find strange about this, though, is that there's been polling around for, for ages that shows that there's a strong sort of either majority or plurality of public opinion in favour of the sort of left social democratic policies that, that featured in the manifesto. Um, yet, for some reason, this has never been pursued as, um, as, a, as a political strategy. But not only that, um, journalists don't seem to be aware of the, the kind of support amongst the public for these various, you know, which are really relatively moderate policies, like, for example, don't break international law um, <laughs> by, you know, um, and cause cause a reason, reason to descend into war and, and, and violence. Infantile leftism, and, uh, but, Tom, infantile leftism. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things that happens, though, isn't it, that these the, 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 this class of journalists go through a process of sort of vaccination, don't they, where 
They're told, for example, that when polls say that people are willing to see taxes raised, they don't really mean it, right? There's a whole set of conventional wisdom about how any evidence of a, of a sympathy for left-wing ideals is, is either virtue signalling, sort of empty virtue signalling, or it's sort of self-deception that, will, that, that falls away in the ballot box. Um, and I think that they are incredibly resistant to evidence. I think, and I think these stories they tell about an essentially reactionary population are really persuasive to them. And I think paradoxically, they're really, they're particularly persuasive to people who see themselves as being on the left. <laughs> yeah, that's the depressing thing. Yeah. It, I mean, it's groupthink, isn't it? It's just classic groupthink. That they just yeah. assume that their, their priorities are mirrored by the public. Yeah, it's, it's definitely groupthink. And it's, but it's also that sort of, it's like a way of savouring their superiority. I think you quote, you know, you've talked before about, you know, how Polly Tommy has said, oh, well, if, if she had her way, she'd be much more left-wing than Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. It's just that she has to be realistic about how basically reactionary and stupid the population are. And therefore, you, get, you have to go through this kind of shadow boxing, pretending not to be a left-leaning um, party in order to win over these kind of sort of basically bestial um, idiots out there. And, and I think, I think it's actually, it's really, it's a very, it's a very warm and pleasant feeling to have, I think, for a certain sort of personality. I also think, to some extent, um, you know, that that kind of common sense does 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 reflect certain realities. Because you know, I mean, I don't want to sort of leap in in defence of Polytopia or anything, but um, they, you can look at other polls, for example, which will, which will show support for you know fairly nationalist kind of assumptions. And of course, one of the lessons that the sort of moderates or um, you know the labour right kind of internalised during the nineteen eighties was that you can't you can't face down the right-wing press, right? And um, it's, uh, I mean, actually, th- there was a quote which which you use in the book, Alex, which is, I think was, yeah, Frankie Dore, which I, I wrote down. It's, uh, it's worth remembering that um, in the press, public opinion is often used interchangeably with media opinion, as if the public was somehow much the same as a group of radically right-wing billionaire sociopaths. It's, it's a nice line, right? And I, I think that's definitely true, but also... One of the things I think was quite interesting about the Corbyn, um, in, in terms of the Corbyn movement, in terms of the media, is that they were able to uh, face down what, what was seen as an enormous kind of unassailable structure. And I mean, I want to talk more about um, social media as well during the general election. But I think it's probably worth mentioning, in terms of context, that even the limited support that Corbyn had from the sort of uh, from the left wing voices had. That they'd, I mean, we forget this now, but they started to um, sort of fade away a bit. So Owen Jones um, goes through this sort of crisis of faith, um, and I think a lot of the lot of the other um, sort of centre left uh, left wing voices in the Guardian kind of more or less um, drop their support, don't they? In the in the before the general election. Yeah, I think he had Paul Mason and Rachel Shabby. I can't remember there being any other people who had columns who who hadn't fallen away by the by the time of the general election being called, which is absolutely remarkable in itself when you consider that even if you took the polling, even if you said 25, you know, even if you said, okay, the polling's dead on, Labour's really only at 25%, you know, in the, on the eve of the general election, that's still a quarter of the population that therefore have no media representation at all except for Rachel Shabby and Paul Mason, which is surely a bizarre situation to be in. Um, and as we know, in actual fact, the latent support was much greater Um so, so it is remarkable that you got to this stage where that kind of cohesive uh, groupthink or whatever you want to call it was so strong that people felt, you know, I mean, Owen Jones' reason for, you know, the, the, the explanation he gives now for why he did that is that he was coming under such pressure from others in the media and others in, as well as at the top of the Labour Party to change his view. And he eventually kind of made a bad calculation and thought that they were correct. So, so that kind of suggests that the, at the, strength of that feeling within that group if somebody who you know I mean Jones worked for John McDonnell and yeah, he's a yeah. left winger but even if someone who's got that worldview and um that kind of history yeah feel gets that much pressure and, and uh buckles under it that shows how strong that kind of 
uh, gravity is within that group. Yeah. Within I guess, that. you know, if you're Owen Jones and you're in that situation and a bunch of, you know, I mean, there's, there's literally like a handful of these people, right, um, who are able to have a voice in the main, you know, the mainstream. Um, you know, it is a lot of pressure because not only are you, you know, you're you're almost start will start to see yourself as the voice of the left because within the mainstream you basically are. So every call that you make has to be, yeah. you know, correct at the same time as ev- all of your immediate peers are saying that this is, um, you know, well, like Toynbee says, it's sort of a march to annihilation for the left for like generations or whatever. Which, mm. you know, you can sort of see that, can't you, in um, the, the kind of uh, very protracted soul searching that Owen Jones goes through during that time. But let's let's um, let's leave Jones and Monbiel and the rest of them behind for a moment and, and get on to the general election. Well, in, in your discussion here, um, you have a lot of uh, focus on, on social media, so I want to talk about that. Um, but also, the other element is the, the politics of, of the broadcasters as well. So um, let's start with social media and how, how important um, you think that was to the campaign. Well, I think it's vi- it was vital, but I think it's been mischaracterised and misunderstood because there's this idea that comes from um, well journalism because I think they don't really understand social media that um, somehow this movement online or this success that Labour had online was conjured by Labour HQ and maybe Jeremy Corbyn's personal accounts and um, there was this kind of paid advertising, dark advertising, all this stuff going on behind the scenes, you know, the stuff that Jim Waterson wrote about, um, as if that that is enough, as if you just put a million pounds into Facebook advertising and you're going to suddenly convince loads of people and win the battle on social media. That's obviously not true because the Tories spent the same amount, or probably more, yeah. on the same techniques and got nowhere with them. Um, so I think that that's a, just a fundamental and basic misunderstanding which you see a lot of uh, in the media. I think what happened was... There was a, a spontaneous, basically, spontaneous movement cohered on social media, as it had done in 2015, leadership election, and 2016, leadership election, but bigger. Um, and it kind of snowballed, you know. It, this is something that on social media, I think I said earlier, but on social media, people talk about how it's replacing um, the press as a source of information and so on. Uh, and I think it's, although it's often people share stories from the mainstream press, so it's not quite true. Um, there is something about the fact that the role of editors and press barons has been undermined by the fact that people can curate their own media, if you like, by sharing certain stories and not others. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think more important in the general election anyway was the uh, the fact that a movement could cohere, the fact that people could talk to each other, people could collaboratively rebut press attacks, uh, people could advertise events that were going on. There was a whole different perspective on the election coming through social media, you know, images of rallies and yeah. videos of Corbyn doing this, that and the other. Yeah. And also just the, the kind of internal humour and the internal creativity that um, exploded yeah. during the general election with the memes and the videos and all this funny stuff and then grind for Corbyn coming along. Um, and so there was this kind of alternative, literally alternative media and alternative yeah. world and alternative narrative of the election happening which was then spinning out onto people's timelines, especially on Facebook, which is much more of a genuine network, although they may have kind of hobbled it now with the change in the algorithm. But at the time, it was spinning out from pro-Corbyn groups onto the timelines of friends and family of people who are pro-Corbyn who may not have been Labour voters. And that, I think, is is the crucial factor. It's not that Labour Party HQ was spending money on Facebook advertising. I think there was also a differentiation in the Labour Party, if we are going to talk about the official output, um, there was Labour HQ was pretty woeful at the start of the election. Their, their, the stuff they were putting out was kind of bland graphics and, and things. They, they tried to avoid any kind of human content at all. There wasn't very much Corbyn in there. I think they kind of just assumed that the media was correct and that Corbyn was a liability and they should you know, just concentrate on the Labour, the Labour brand. Um, so they were doing that. They, they got better during the election, but that's what they were doing. Jeremy Corbyn, his personal accounts were... Um, doing the same stuff that they'd done in 2015, 2016. And as a result, he was the most um, influential tweeter in the election, um, according to, you know, academic, well, quasi-academic studies of right. social media. Um, he, you know, his posts had huge reach. And he was doing the kind of um, more uh, conversational stuff um, and kind of audacious, 
little funny things like when he challenged Theresa May on Facebook and her Facebook live interview and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, the other thing he did, um, you mentioned in the book, this is a little bit off topic, but when he pulled up um, Peston's programme as well. Yeah, that one, yeah. Um, is that the one you're thinking of? That's the one I was thinking of, where Theresa May yeah. went on Facebook Live and she was being interviewed by Peston, and people were submitting questions on Facebook, and Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> submitted a question, why won't you debate me on TV? It was, and, uh, hello, Theresa May, as Prime Minister, you have served your elite friends by giving them tax cuts or wages. <laughs> House building is at its lowest since 1920s, and there are 20,000 fewer people on the street since 2010, and the NHS is in crisis. This was like, yeah, Peston announced it. Now we have surprisingly a question from Jeremy Corbyn of his thing. That made great, great TV, I think. Well, and what happened with that was, I mean, I don't know, I think that, that Facebook Live appearance by Theresa May was notoriously not very very heavily watched. Not many people oh, were right. bothered about it. But the, the Corbyn, social, Corbyn social media team, not Labour's, and they were independent and they were funded independently, Corbyn's social media team clicked the footage of that and then put it out themselves. And so a far wider audience saw it from Jeremy Corbyn clipping that incident right. and putting out than, than from the original thing. And there's great, you know, a great story from Ben Sellers who was working on Corbyn's social media and he'd worked, he, he was the one who had kind of driven, the, along with Marsha Jane Thompson, driven the social media stuff in 2015 as well. And he then went in to have his hair cut a few days later in, in a barbershop and the, the hairdresser said, um, they were talking about the election, she said, oh, I'm not interested in the election, they all talk crap. Um, but I did like that thing the other day when I saw that Jeremy Corbyn had ambushed that Theresa May with his with her with his tweets, and uh, she was saying it's great that politicians don't normally do that. So that kind of audacious kind of thing that has a connection with people on a you know that people can kind of relate to is much more effective, I think, than the standard um, we're going to broadcast our policies in a traditional manner with with some graphic. And that's what Corbyn's accounts were doing. And then also you had momentum, which was separate and. Uh, was doing its own social media strategy and had, you know, a, a extraordinary success with its videos. It was it was interesting, wasn't it? That there was a sense that a sentiment was being shared, um, a sentiment of uplift and 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 a hope that that kind of gave people permission to buy into the political agenda as well. You know, it, there was enormous pressure from the media saying that Corbyn was like unelectable, unacceptable, um, beyond the pale in all kinds of ways. And I think one of the things the social media campaign did was say to people, it's okay to like Corbyn, other people like Corbyn. You can see that mm -hmm. people are actually chanting his name now. And that gave people, I think, a reassurance that they weren't outliers. That it wasn't odd to be... Um, to be supportive of him, which, as you say, I think, you know, 10, 20 years ago would have been very, very difficult to, to, to find any, any way of doing that short of spending, like, billions on communications, you know, um, because it's it just the, the avenue to, to communicate independently simply wasn't there. Um, that's, um, that's great. So, Tom, if you're happy to, to move on, Perhaps we can talk a bit about changes in media political coverage since the election. Um, and um, Alex, you are probably the country's foremost sofaologist, um, which is <laughs> I deny this. It's um, it's not a hybrid of sociology and sophology. It's um, it's it's forensic analysis of who appears on the sofas of the weekend political um, uh, comment magazine programmes discusses the, um, the weekly press. And we can talk a bit about that format anyway and how, how peculiar a format it, it increasingly seems, um, in part because of, of the rise in social media, but also to talk a bit about the personnel who are invited to, to, to comment on, on the week's agenda. Um, and... The, the sort of the, the persistent chronic problem that the media seem to have with representing Corbyn's Labour Party, um, you know, in 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 sort of broad broad main broadcast channels and so on. So let's start with the with like how much do you think has the election changed um, the tenor of coverage in the year or nearly year that's fo that, it, that, that followed it. 
I think there was a period of shock after the election result when there was an attempt to broaden the range of voices that you heard on the media, although not a particularly systematic or, or successful attempt. Um, and there was a kind of reticence about writing Corbyn off as a joke. I think that's kind of gradually, it's gradually slipping back to the, how it was before. Um, although they can't say Corbyn's unelectable and they can't say he's incompetent and all the things they used to say, um, you're getting this, the same smears being recycled. You know, this Czech, Czechoslovakian spy story was a classic example, very kind of similar to what would have happened before the election or in the, in the leadership election even. Yeah. Um, so, so that kind of, that side of it is probably probably coming back. But just to kind of restrict it to the, the broadcasters, um, I think I, I deny this claim that I'm the foremost sociologist. I'm actually, I'm actually very specific. I, I've been cataloguing the BBC Sunday Politics political panel. Right. And I think that that's um, an interesting example because it's not a paper review. So it's not kind of just incidental. It's right. actually three people brought together to give their verdict on politics. And they're introduced as experts. And you have, you can just, I mean, it's not even necessary to exaggerate. You can just go back and look through the 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 record of who's been on and it's usually two people from the right um you know generally kind of Isabel Oakeshott and Tom Newton Dunn people like that um and one person from the centre or the centre left so you might have Steve Richards who's quite good um or you might but he's not like a Corbynite or you might have Helen Lewis someone like that and then very occasionally I think on four occasions since the general election they've had on uh, somebody from the left so Rachel Shabby and by the left I'm just basically saying somebody who's not overtly or somebody who's vaguely around the position of the Labour leadership, which won 40% in the last general election. Yeah. So Rachel Shabby, Paul Mason, Zoe Williams, or um, that's probably it. Um, and yeah, that's that's just the, the pattern every week on BBC's Sunday politics programme going out at 11 o'clock on a Sunday. Um, their, their panel of experts routinely and apparently without apology or even explanation features two people from the right and one person from the centre-left. Um, and I can't think of justification for that. I, I just, I, I'm amazed that they've persisted with it and haven't kind of realised themselves. And it does suggest, you know, before you could say, well, maybe it's because of the influence of people from the right, like Robbie Gibb, who, but he now works for Conservatives. So I, I, I can't explain that. In terms of, uh, if we're going to talk also about newspaper reviews, which are increasingly common on broadcast media, that they just, they you know, have these kind of 10-minute reviews of what's in the newspapers. I'm actually probably less strident than maybe you'd hope I am on those because I think that um, they, usually there's not a, a Labour story that needs to be rebutted. When, when there's a story attacking Labour, then if the fact that there's usually nobody from the left on obviously means that it doesn't get rebutted yeah. in a discussion, which is a problem. But, you know, for most of the time they're talking about, you know, the Oxfam scandal or something. So it's not usually that much of a problem. I think the actual, I think the problem with those newspaper reviews is much more the fact that because the press is so overwhelmingly right wing, inevitably the stories they discuss are um, selected and framed by people who have a right-wing agenda. So even if you had left-wingers on, they're still always on the back foot talking about stories which have been presented by right-wing newspapers. So I think there's just a fundamental flaw in the um, in the concept of those newspaper reviews. Yeah, I agree. I mean, basically, you know, they're, they're taking... Um, the starting point is basically what's appearing in the press, and that that's the jump-off for discussion as to what's going on in the world, which is... Yeah, obviously assumes that the press is some sort of neutral arbiter of um, what's you know what's happening and how it should be understood, which is you know quite obviously not the case really. Um, and yeah, it, it, even if you had left wing voices on it, it puts on on the back foot. I mean, I suppose the obvious thing to do would be to broaden the range of sources, but without um, without left wing media organisations with the kind of I suppose clout to produce new stories that wouldn't even that wouldn't obviously reset the kind of balance of um, politics within you know within the press and within um, the the media. Mm -hmm. I don't think. Um, I think this is quite a good moment to take this forward to think a bit about um, the future of um, the media on the left. The, the traditional trajectory on the Labour left was the idea that you would democratise the party on the way to democratising society. We've seen 
in quite a painful and, and conflicted process. We've seen the Labour Party become a, a far more um, dynamic communicative uh, institution than it was even a couple of years ago. Um, can we talk a bit about how perhaps, in drawing on, on some of the things we've been talking about, how we can see that dynamism brought into a more general conception of the political um, is there is there are there possibilities that that what Labour has learned in the last few years might inform its approach to the media when it moves into government, and you know particularly thinking about we mentioned the the power of this the sort of centre left editorial group think and the amount of pressure it was able to apply even even on people um, like Owen Jones who are quite ideologically committed to a, a Corbyn type. Of, position like how do we break that cartel on on the center left in the media um i'm gonna i'll throw that over to, to, to you alex i mean how how much do you think we can expect to see um the the recent experiences of the labor party influence its its um approach to government um well, I don't know. I mean, this is probably slightly a, tan- a point at a tangent, but I think that the, I mean, to, just I saw in the news just as we were recording this that the government's announced it's not going to do Leveson two, and the Labour Party says it would do Leveson two if it was in power. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's actually I've been saying this since uh, Jeremy Corbyn got elected that if Labour came out with a kind of comprehensive policy, especially on media ownership and plurality saying, you know, we can't have this situation where Rupert Murdoch owns so much of the media, we're going to restrict it far more than it is at the moment, um, then I think that would be politically, you know, wise, because then you could, whenever the attacks come in, you say, well, they're just protecting their business interests. So that seems to be where, um, I don't know, I mean, it was only implied in Jeremy Corbyn's video that he released the other week about the Czechoslovakian spy story. It was implied that there would be some kind of um, reform of the media standards and so on. Um, and obviously the press got very offended by this. Um, but that that uh, that kind of strategy seems to be quite sensible to me because obviously it's not, um, you know, defending the free press is fine, but if you're defending the free press where it's all owned by a billionaire, then it's not, you know, <laughs> it's not particularly, uh, it's, the public doesn't have much sympathy with that, I don't think. Um, as for how, well, your question though is how would it affect Labour policy is that what you're saying? Or yeah, I just wonder. I mean, it's a sort of it's an idle question, and it may not be something that that uh, you you have any particular kind of um, sense of. But I just wonder, given how much the Labour Party has changed in the last few years, as, a, as it were, as a as a kind of communicative entity, how much it's learnt about, as you say, about the dynamics of exchange on social media, um, about about the nature of um, uh, or, or of traditional print and broadcast power and its limitations. I wonder whether this is is, is likely to inform their their policies in government. But but this is as I say, perhaps this is just me kind of wandering aloud. Well, you'd hope so. I mean, on social media, for example, there are chan- there are threats and challenges to the openness of social media, and you would hope that. The, the Labour Party would know what's good for it <laughs> when it's in government. Well, right, um, and that, that's, I suppose, one of the things I, I worry about, is whether whether they they see, as it were, the openness of Facebook and Twitter as a given, when, in fact, it's. I think increasingly it will be seen as like a historical aberration, right? I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that happened after the election was that the Conservatives um, immediately began complaining about how social media was a hotbed of extremism and had to be tamed, right? Yeah. And, and it's like... It's quite clear to me that that they they were telling these digital giants, as indeed I think the Democrat and Republican establishments were in the states. They were telling these these guys stop fucking around. You're you know you're creating an opening for people like Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, and this is not where your bread is buttered. Um, so I worry that they do think it. They see this this sort of new openness as a, as it were as a fact of nature rather than as a, um, as a sort of accidental feature of, of these commercial platforms? Mm. Well, the honest answer is I don't know what their awareness is. I mean, the, the culture secretary would be responsible for this would be Tom Watson. So that's, um, I mean, he does know a lot about social media, but he's, he also kind of tried to um, 
have some kind of initiative against fake news, which seemed to mean left-wing blogs not so long ago. So um, I wouldn't necessarily have that much faith in him. Um, I don't know if there's a kind of broader awareness um, of the changes that Facebook's already making, which might affect Labour in the in the next general election. Um, you'd hope so. I mean, with the, the Labour Party is such a complex organisation that um, in terms of policy, you've got all these different, you know, you've got the National Policy Forum, you've got the pol- Leaders' Policy Team, you've got the Party's Policy Team, um, you've got the relevant Minister's Policy Team. So it's difficult to pin this kind of stuff down, really. Yeah, um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Tom, we are now at 59 minutes and 59 seconds. So oh my God, we missed the hour. We <laughs> are, we're already in injury time. Um, yeah. But um, is, there, is there anything else on, um, as it were, the post-election landscape that you'd like to, to, to talk about or to raise with Alex? Uh, well... I'm going to take I'm going to take that long pause as a no, <laughs> and say and say that we will perhaps very smoothly and neatly come to the end of um, this edition of Media Democracy. Everyone should get out and and buy a copy of uh, Alex's book. It's a great read. Alex, thanks for joining us, and thanks everyone else for listening. We'll be back next week. Fantastic. Thanks again, Alex. Thank you very much. Change is coming.